everyone. Thanks for joining us this evening. Very happy to welcome Father Brad Krofcheck to St. Francis Cabrini this evening for a talk on the Eucharist. The title of this talk is Being Brought into the Unseen World Through the Eucharistic Sacrifice of Christ and His Church. So Father and I are actually ordination classmates. He's several years my senior, uh, so he's wiser and knows more. And but we did lay down in the marble next to one another uh, before we were ordained priests at St. John the Evangelist Cathedral on May 19th, 2012. So great to have you with us this evening. Um, he is uh, from the south side. He's Polish, as you know from his name, Father Brad Krofcheck. Uh Can anybody spell Krofcheck? Anybody even want to try? Nobody even wants to try. One of those Polish names with many consonants and few vowels. Oh, we have more coming. Just a couple. Let's see if I can. K-R-A-W-C-Z-Y-K. Oh, and it's right here. Oh, and it's written down. See, he found me out. It was actually cheating. I could have never got it on my own. Um, he wears many hats. The <laughs> yes, I can spell your name, too. <laughs> good, good job. Yeah. Good for you. Yes. Um, he wears many hats these days. He's on formation faculty at St. Francis de Sales Seminary. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor at Sacred Heart School of Theology. I believe he teaches in the permanent diaconate formation program, um, does a lot of emceeing for the archbishop as well, uh, and is a liturgical consultant, right, for the archdiocese. So many hats. We're very happy that you uh, took time out of your busy day to come join us this evening. Thanks so much for being here. get to hold on to that for right now. Can everybody hear me if I use the lavalier? Okay, very good. It's much more friendly uh, because I have a way of gesticulating from time to time that that microphone definitely impedes. Well, thank you so much to Father Strand and to Father Harmon for inviting me here today. And in fact, really what a great pleasure it is to be in this church almost redone. Right? I mean, it's just uh, to see this in its stages is a real beautiful gift. So thank you to fathers for allowing me to be with you this evening. Now, I was told that I have a few minutes to talk. So my plan here is to talk for probably about 40 minutes, probably more like 45 or so, uh, give or take. And then we we'll also have some questions. I believe that's the timeline that we're still on, believe. Okay, very good. So it would really be an opportunity for me to talk about this topic, which is really centralized on the Most Holy Eucharist. But part of this is, is once again rekindling our sense of what is the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and how do we enter into something that is such a beautiful mystery. And for us, you know, entering into mystery as Catholics can seem a little scary. Because not everybody likes mysteries, right? Because it's a little unknown, and we want to be in a relationship with God that's really close. So when I talk about mystery here, I don't want us to think about this as like, I don't know, like the Hallmark Mysteries Channel, right? Where everything gets solved in, you know, in two hours, right? It's not that kind of mystery, but rather it's a mystery that's helping us enter into the beauty and the glory of God. Now, also, unlike uh, a Hallmark Channel mystery, 
there will necess not necessarily be a happy ending. No, there will be, in a sense. Because we ultimately, when we grow in a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ and his church, we then are living the abundant life filled with the fullness of sanctifying grace that then prepares us for eternal life in heaven. So the end of the story is actually a good one. But there's a lot that happens through the way. Right? And I'm not naive to the fact that so many of us come here even this evening with our own struggles, our own concerns, and in fact the mystery that is unfolding in our own lives. The mystery of God's love. And how do we put together all the things that are who we are as part of our movement in a deeper life of faith, in relationship with Jesus Christ and his church? Sound like a fair way to spend a few minutes on a cold winter evening? Okay, very good. So let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. By your help, we beseech you, Lord our God, may we walk eagerly in that same charity with which, out of love for the world, your Son handed himself over to death. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. St. John Henry Newman, who some of you probably are familiar with, but will just work with me, okay? St. John Henry Newman, a saint of the church, he asserts that Jesus Christ counteracts time and the world. Counteracts time and the world. It, the blessed sacrament, is not past. It is not a way. It is this that makes devotion in our lives possible. It is the life of our religion, he says. And through it, we are brought into the unseen world. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is beautifully dense. How many of you have a copy at home and have never opened it up? Good, some of you are honest at least, thank goodness. Now we can have a real conversation. Now I understand the Catechism of the Catholic Church is a dense work. So I'm going to quote it a couple of times throughout the course of this evening. I do encourage you to pick it up and open it up. But first of all, I encourage you to open up your family Bible. How many of you have that at home? I'm not going to ask you to show hands and haven't opened that up. Okay? Open these things up. They're great tools to understand how God loves us. They're revelatory. Okay? So the Catechism of the Catholic Church is a beautifully dense work that is also approachable with some study. It will stretch you as a reader, and it is a work not only about faith, but of faith. The Catechism's focus on the Eucharist is really only about 20 pages. And if you're taking notes and you're going to run home and open up your book, it's numbers 1322 through 1419. There will be no quiz at the end of this, so don't worry. But it's Numbers 1322 through 1419. And in this very short section of the book, we are reminded that in the teaching of the church that comes to us on the liturgy called Sacrosanctum Concilium, so it's the church's teaching on the liturgy, the constitution on the sacred liturgy, that this is true. This is number 1324. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. 
The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesial ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself. It will be impossible for us this evening in the amount of time that we have to discuss all of the facets of the most blessed sacrament. Simply impossible. For an understanding of the blessed sacrament requires that we spend time studying what the church teaches, but also praying and living. Now, I'm sure it's a possibility that some of you have been given a special grace to understand more deeply certain things. But what I encourage you to understand about the Most Holy Eucharist and understanding its depth is that this is a lifetime worth of exploration. How many of you here tonight are newlyweds? No one? Okay. How many of you have, here tonight have been married more than 25 years? Okay, good chunk. Now, I'm sure all of you are lovely people and your spouses are lovely people as well, but I'm pretty sure you know your spouse better today than you do on the day you married him or her. Correct? And in fact, what that love looks like is radically different than it was on the day you were married. But there was a hope about what that love was going to be. Now, for all of us who are not married, there is also this longing for understanding what this really means. But we know what relationships are like. Even friendships evolve. They grow as you get to know the other person. So the invitation part of, of, part of today is to just go deeper into that relationship and let the understanding of what Jesus gives us in the gift of himself in the most holy Eucharist unfold in your life. And that's going to require a little work. But don't forget, God does most of the work. You just sometimes have to show up. Is that possible? Just showing up, right? It, we understand then in this teaching of the church on what is the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian life. It is nevertheless the liturgy, that is the action that is around the Eucharist, is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. So I am sure you've gone through various stages of talking and understanding like why Sunday Mass is important let alone daily Mass, but why is Sunday Mass important? Really, everything does flow to Sunday Mass and from Sunday Mass, from the Eucharistic sacrifice and from it. In fact, as the Church instructs us, all of the sacraments, other than the Eucharist itself, get its power and strength from the Eucharist. Because at the heart of the matter, the Eucharist is something that is much more profound than we give it credit for, perhaps. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. For the, aim of the, uh, for the aim and the object of all of our good works is that all we are and all that we do flows because we have faith, and that faith is made real because of baptism. How many of you had a child who's been baptized or have been a sponsor? 
have been close to baptism. Okay? So Father brings, brings you in, and he will ask, so what do you want of Christ and his church? Your response is? Baptism. Actually, one of the valid responses right in the book says faith. What do you ask of Christ and his church? Faith. Now, as we go deeper and deeper into this, we have to understand that baptism then becomes a fundamental way in which we then understand how and why we come together as a people of God. And we do so in the midst of a church. That means a body of people, not just a building. And we do so to take part in a sacrifice and to eat the Lord's Supper. The aim, at least some of them, is that we are filled with more faith to be more holy and to grow in unity. From the liturgy, therefore, and especially from the Eucharist, as from a font, grace is poured forth upon us and the sanctification of men in Christ and the glorification of God happens. And it's to which all other activities of the church are directed. If we continue, if we continue to look at the various names then that we give, particularly the sacrament of the Eucharist, I think they're revelatory for helping us understand a little bit of the depth of the sacrifice of the Mass and then the Holy Communion we receive. Some of the names that the Catechism recalls in 1328, when it says the inexhaustible richness of the sacrament is expressed in the different names we give it. Each name evokes certain aspects of it. It is called Eucharist because it is an action of thanksgiving to God. Does anybody know what Eucharist means, what the Greek means? Thanksgiving, good. So you're a bright group. I don't have to tell you all about that. And it recalls the Jewish blessings that were proclaimed, especially during a meal. It also refers to God's works, creation, redemption, and sanctification. But here are some of the other names. The Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread, the Eucharistic synaxis or assembly. I just had to throw in another Greek word for fun. The memorial of the Lord's passion and resurrection, the holy sacrifice, the holy and divine liturgy, sacred mysteries, most blessed sacrament, holy communion and holy mass, all of these help us understand. There are other names, too, of course. The bread of angels comes to mind. When we talk about the Eucharist, it's hard to separate it from the action that helps make it present, or that makes it present, not just helps, but that of the sacrifice of the Mass itself. Who is familiar with Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 35? Anybody? <laughs> What's that? Okay. It's the story of the two apostles on the road to Emmaus. Okay. 
I think I have the right chapter. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I got the wrong chapter. I'm pretty sure it's chapter 24. Fathers, am I close? I think so. I don't mean to put them on the... the, They weren't even listening, so what's the difference? (laughs) So, but we're familiar with the story nonetheless, right? So let's walk through the story a little bit, because I think it's helpful. So you have two apostles who are leaving Jerusalem. They are walking to Emmaus, okay? What day is it? It's Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday evening, maybe, right? Afternoonish. So all of a sudden they're walking, and of course there's a lot that has happened. And who shows up? Another guy. We don't know it's Jesus yet, right? See, that's the best part of this. We know the end of the stories. But there's another guy that comes up, and they yes, well, what's going on? Does anybody remember what they say to him? Are you the only person who lives under a rock? So, they begin to tell him about the story of all that has happened. And then they eventually get to the house. And what does that guy who shows up do? Ah, but more interesting. It's an interesting point here. He's going to continue on his way. What happens? Ah. The two disciples invite him to stay. They bring him into the house. Important point. Okay? Then what happens? Okay? Jesus breaks the bread with them. Right? He celebrates Mass, if you will. And then what happens? Their eyes are open and he disappears. This is, I mean, this is what the glorified body does. The glorified body shows up, he disappears, he kind of looks like who he is, he walks through walls, he eats. Right? There's this this, uh, ability to move beyond what are the human limitations, right? Right? It's the glorified body. I oftentimes joke with uh, the seminarians that I'm really looking forward to the glorified body, right? Because when everybody thinks they go to heaven and get the glorified body, what do they think they're going to look like? Like when they were 18, right? You know, perfect, right? Or something like this. I say, no, I am an example right now of the glorified body. My body isn't going to change all that much, I don't think. But Actually, I think also, as a complete aside, when I get to heaven, I'm not sure I'm going to care what I look like. Because I'm going to be focused on God. In a way that I've never imagined before. For eyes has, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has ready for those who love him. Right? I think that means stuff about now as much as it does about heaven. But nonetheless. Okay, so the glorified Jesus, the risen Jesus, takes off. And then they say, wow. Were our hearts not on fire while he opened up the scriptures and then broke the bread with us? Hmm. Does that sound like anything we do? You can all say yes, it does. Please. Okay, good. Oof. 
I thought I really missed my point. Okay? When we come together at Mass, the Word of God is shared. The Word of God is Christ himself. He is the Word. He's broken open for us, ultimately through the homily, right? So that we might be prepared to recognize him in what? In the Eucharist, in the breaking of the bread. Every time we come to Mass, it's a mini, if you will, preparation for coming to know what it will be like to see God in heaven. to see the glorified body. One more point to the story. There might be more. I think I have two more, but I'm at least going to get one more out. What happens next? So they realize that their whole entire life is not a sham. That the Savior didn't die in a way that they thought was end, the end of it all, but that he rose actually from the dead and he is in their presence. Right? What do they immediately do? They go right back to Jerusalem to do what? To evangelize. Talk to everybody about it. They're going back to the apostles. It's a reminder that when we learn about Jesus through sacred scripture, learn him, him himself, receive him in the substantial way that is the divine, that is the real presence in the most holy Eucharist, it then fuels us to go out and share the good news of the gospel. At a very minimum, by the way in which we live. See, because the big mistake is to leave what we do in church within, I was going to say the four walls, but how many are there here? Are there? <laughs> within the confines of this room, it's a mistake. For we should be filled, or at least grow in this understanding of how we're filled more and more and more with this divine gift, this divine love, blessings, sanctifying grace, that it has no place to go but other than spill over. And we would like others to share in that joy. So I say to you, don't limit yourself. Because God doesn't want to limit you. <laughs> He's expecting that his grace will be sufficient enough for you to share a little bit. A thorough presentation, this catechism says, is made on the signs uh, is made on the signs of bread and wine, including their place in the worship through salvation history. In both covenants, it is noted that the first announcement of the Eucharist divided the disciples just as the announcement of the Passion scandalized them. I hope you're all aware with John chapter 6. It's a beautiful gospel. I'm sort of, I have a preference for the gospel of John, and I have a pre preference for the gospel of John because it's very sacramental. It's very liturgy-like. Okay? But John chapter 6, I'm sure you're familiar with this story as well. Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. 
And he says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And the people start to say, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not have life within you. No, 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 no. No, this isn't, this, this isn't right. People start to murmur. And in fact, if you recall John chapter 6, many will leave. What I want you to hopefully even begin to appreciate is that you're coming to Mass, you're even being here this evening, is already an example of God's grace working in you. It's building on the gift of faith that you received at your baptism, along with the gifts that you received of the Holy Spirit in your confirmation, strengthening the gifts that you received in baptism. Some of you are preparing, I think, for confirmation. So that you might continue to build on the goodness that God has put in you. I think we sometimes want to make this a zero-sum game, right? Because we are good Catholics and we understand we are not worthy to receive things from God because God is so far beyond us. But yet what we also understand is that God has become like us so that we might become like him. Our fundamental disposition could be that of fear towards God. And that's not a bad place, really, to linger for a while. But perhaps that fear turns into something much more like respect and appreciation and devotion. For fear and love of the Lord is a beautiful thing because God is pretty awe-inspiring. And this is the sort of God that has decided that he wants to become like us. Isn't that the great gift of Christmas, the incarnation? God wants to become like us so that we might become like him. He lives an entire life, offers himself in sacrifice for us so that we might be freed from sin, so that we might live in the newness of life of the resurrection, so that one day we might participate forever in heaven, in the heavenly liturgy. And you ask yourself, well, why? And I think the answer is relatively simple. Because love does such things. We know from sacred scripture that God is love. First John in particular, highlighting that God is love. But this is the sort of thing. Think about the way in which we can analogously approach this. This is true probably for parents. You love even though you know your children don't always see what you do. Because love does such things. Younger people here, obviously, you don't do bad things because part of it is you don't want to get in trouble. But hopefully it's also rooted in the fact because you're willing to give up a little bit of what would be selfish for the good of another, because love does such things.
now. Our blessed Lord then says, if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will have life within you and you will live forever. I'm always... Um, funerals are a tough thing. And I know oftentimes surrounding funerals, for any of, any of you who have been to funerals, you probably don't always listen to the petitions or the universal prayer at funerals. But there's a particular universal prayer that's in the standard version, that's in the ritual book, that talks about the person who has died and their great faith and the fact that they have eaten of the blood of the flesh and have drank the blood of Jesus. And we now commend them to Almighty God. That God would be good on his promise. And we know that God is faithful. See, this is all a part of who we are as the mystery of our lives unfold from birth, baptism, to even where we end up in death. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1085, says in the liturgy of the church, it is principally his own paschal mystery that Christ signifies and makes present. During his earthly life, Jesus announced his paschal mystery by teaching and anticipating it by his actions. When his hour comes, he lives out the unique event of history which does not pass away. Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father once for all. All other historical events happen once, and they pass away, swallowed up in the past. The paschal mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past, because by his death he destroyed death, and all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity, and so transcends times while being made present in them all. The event of the cross and resurrection abides and draws everything toward life. I know that's a meaty, it's a meaty quote. When I say, please be honest, don't look at your neighbor and see if they raise their hand. When I say Paschal Mystery, you say I have exactly the idea of what you're talking about. Can you raise your hand when I say Paschal Mystery? Okay. This is a tough one. Because the Paschal Mystery is the very sacrifice of Christ. And this is what we are brought into as Christians. We know that as we've been baptized in the Christ, we've been baptized also into his resurrection, St. Paul tells us. The Paschal Mystery is the life, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ. We're talking about the Paschal Mystery. And this is what we engage in every single time we come to Mass in a particular way. And we are asked by Holy Mother Church to give of ourselves in that same way, at least spiritually, to place ourselves on the paten with the hosts and in the chalice with the wine, our entire selves, so that we can unite it with that suffering, that death, that resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In essence, to be transformed just like the elements of bread and wine. 
This seems like, okay, how is this possible? But our blessed Lord assures us time and time and time again, read John chapter 6, the Bird of Life discourse, right? That we are united with him in this Eucharist. And he's feeding us with, our, with his body and blood so that we might be more like him. A little bit more, perhaps, each time. Who likes quick fixes? Everybody likes a quick fix. Who really wants to go and do something a little bit at a time and see it finished decades later? Parents, I know that's your children, but that's a whole different story. Nobody likes this. And isn't this even more apparent in our culture today when it's now, 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 now? I have to tell you, this is something that I realize about myself. I'm not a particularly patient person to begin with. And now that a, sort of a, a smartphone has just become an integral part of who we are, it's like attached, it's like another appendage. Right? Here is this... The, if I do not, or even if I'm on my desktop, if I don't get a response to my question from Google in like half of a half of a second, I'm upset. So come on. But God is far more patient with us to allow his love to unfold and be understood that as we engage in the mystery of what is unseen, we might understand more and more clearly what has been revealed. God's love. Now, I do believe that we can hold this to be true and let it unfold, right? So I'm not saying, you know, okay, just hang on the fence. Right? I'm kind of a... My oldest sister, Dawn, she's lovely. Um, but she told me something not that long ago that really shocked me. She said, you know, Brad, because she, she, you know, it's my oldest sister. Good luck having her call me father. So she says, hey, Brad, you're not a very big risk taker. And I thought to myself, I don't know, am I? I want my life as a Christian, to be seen as someone taking the biggest risk possible that is trusting that God loves me and allowing the graces he gives me to transform me. Now, this is not what she was talking about. But I took this as a moment of reflection. Where am I the barrier and maybe this is a good thing for us today as we're in the, kind of getting towards the middle of Lent. Well, that was Lent. It happens every year. Advent. I guess we're still, now we're, you know, we're kind of in the middle. To sort of make straight the paths, right? Fill in the valleys. But that's really God who's going to make that possible. It's not our own work because just like I said, you're here tonight because God is doing good work in you. And you've been docile enough to it to cooperate with that grace. 
Think about what happens during the events of Holy Week, particularly that of the Paschal Triduum. So Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. Holy Saturday is kind of like the Easter Vigil's really Sunday. Okay? These events are the Paschal Mystery celebrated in three days. Because frankly, we have to separate them out so we understand them. But they're all united in their action. For the cross is the mass, the mass is cross, and then we receive the resurrected Lord. This ultimately then allows us to participate because he has gone and ascended to the Father and sent his spirit so that we can participate in this already not yetness. I know Father, Father Harmon's going to be mad that I said it. The already not yetness of God's kingdom. There's this beautiful image the Eastern rites of the church have. It talks about mass is where heaven and earth kiss. There is this delicacy that exists there, but there's also a passionate love. When God comes to us, we lovingly respond because God lovingly comes to us. There is this mutual exchange, if you will. And that is what is happening when we offer ourselves on the patent with the bread and in the chalice with the wine. It's once again saying to God, I give you the totality of who I am, my concerns, my worries, my hopes, my dreams, to be taken and transformed so that it might be turned into love. Love of you. And therefore also strength to continue on the path of faith. Call me crazy, but this isn't always easy, is it? Right? But we have great hope, for we know that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, as we know from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's the great canonic. It's the fancy word, canonic hymn. It's this... Christ empties himself, taking the form of a servant, of a slave, so that we might be freed from sin. Now, to be honest, some people could just outright reject everything I've said tonight. Don't they? The reality is, is we as people of faith Except that the word of God is true. And what we're being offered, although we cannot see it in a way that is actual, right? I mean, we can debate about what grace looks like or what does the Eucharist really look like because it has these features. But it's all for us to understand what it lies behind it, which is God's love. Because... Who would suffer for you except for the one who is love itself? Because love does such things. See, even the children applaud. Right? They concur.
Okay. In my last few minutes here, I want you to think about the fact that you really are someone who does liturgy as a result of your baptism. When I say liturgy, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Ah, eh, maybe. It's part of it. Liturgy is also a Greek word. But the word liturgy means work done on behalf of the people. Okay? So when we talk about, the, the East would talk about the Mass being the divine liturgy, it's God's divine work done on behalf of the people. It comes to us from the Roman tradition, where there is this sense of society, right? And the, the government provides certain things, so on and so forth. So it's work done on behalf of the people. We are people who are actually ones who do liturgy. We do work when we come to Mass. Mass itself is a type of liturgy, right? All the sacraments are a type of liturgy. It's work done on behalf of the people. Okay? So, I oftentimes say, if you've come to Mass and you don't leave tired, you haven't done enough work. Coming to Mass and engaging in Mass is serious business. It requires our attention and our effort and our sacrifice. Because it's work done on our behalf, but it's also done on behalf of those that we are in communion with. Those we bring to prayer. Those who are a member of our parish. The church as a whole. The world as a whole. It's work done on behalf of others. And for others. God is the principal actor here. Well, the tr Blessed Trinity. Jesus is the principal liturgist, the principal doer. But we, baptized into his priesthood, also participate in that work. So I'm, I'm telling you, you know, when we come to Mass, we, we want to leave what? Oftentimes we want to feel what? How do you want to feel when you leave Mass? Joyful, what else? Blessed. Energized. What's that? Renewed. How do you want to feel? Yeah. Happy and good. I'm telling you it's more important to be tired. <laughs> Much more important to be tired when you leave. Because you have given it all. In union with the one who gave everything that we might have newness of life. And guess what? The mystery of it all is it ultimately makes you feel good, happy. What else? Joyful. Renewed. Energized. You come to Mass, it isn't passive. You're not just receiving, in a sense. But God is giving a lot. But having the disposition to receive takes some work. Now, I know it's not true in this parish because you have two excellent priests who are wonderful homilists, but that also means paying attention. And for some, that's hard, especially if they have to listen to me. <laughs> Trust me, I live with seminarians. 
I know they don't listen. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're holy men. But do you see what I'm saying here? For example, I oftentimes will uh, talk with confirmation students, and what is the first thing they say about church? Church is boring. You know what my first response is back to them? Nah, it's even better. Eh, you're boring. <laughs> and I don't mean it meanly. It's just that we, haven't re- we, haven't, we have to recalibrate that. Because you need to bring your entire person to Mass. If you bring your own self into the liturgy, because you are a liturgist by baptism, if you bring yourself into Mass, it can never be boring might not be the best thing that ever happened to you that particular Sunday because you've got other concerns on your mind and there are things that are blocking you from being fully engaged. I get that. But if you give it your all when you come to Mass, it's not so boring. Because I guarantee you, I absolutely guarantee you, I believe this with every breath I take, that each person in church today is not boring because they're loved by God. And you have been brought into the economy that is the life of salvation for some reason. Do not sell yourself short. Something very important, I think, here is when we come together, we also do something that's called remembering, and it's an anamnesis. It's called anamnesis, another big Greek word. It's this sort of memory-making that makes present. Okay? And this is really what happens. As we come together, we remember the ways in which Christ has moved in our lives, that God has blessed us in our lives, the history of salvation as we understand what happens in sacred scripture. All that's brought together in such a way that it makes him present. And then through the words of the priest, the Eucharist is confected. I don't want us to limit this memory making in a way, right, to just inside the church. Because we are being brought into something, this memory making is united with our own understanding and appreciation for tradition. Capital T, little t also. When I say capital T, tradition, this isn't a technical foul. Capital T, capital T, tradition, what does that mean? Does not change. Sort of the real elements of faith. Okay, little t, these are things that come along with that. Okay? But our traditions, both big T and little t, are who we are because we embody them. And if we don't allow the memory making that we do here invade what we do outside of here, we're not really taking hold of the traditions. As a church, we are asked then to go back time and time and time again to that fundamental capital T tradition, 
which is the Eucharist, if you will, playing a little bit here with this term, to allow ourselves to let that invade other parts of our lives. Because we know, as St. Paul says, that on the night in which he was betrayed, Christ took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body. He took wine and said, this is my blood. And we as Christians, particularly then as Roman Catholics, have been doing that since the very day, night of the Last Supper. The fundamental elements are exactly the same. Sharing the word, breaking it open, blessing the bread and wine, and consuming the real presence of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity in most holy communion. The core elements, fine. I mean, I know in the year, you know, 33, there wasn't a building that looked like this, I don't think. But what Christians do from the very beginning has not changed. And we are brought into something that is bigger than ourselves. This is the beautiful thing, really, because what we believe is how we pray, and how we pray is what we believe. There's a fancy Latin phrase for this, lex orande, lex credendi, what I believe, or what we believe is what we pray. But there's a whole nother angle to this. The last part of that phrase is also something called, in Latin, the lex vivendi, how we live. Again and again, as we receive again and again, we are asked to go out again and again and live differently. Live renewed. Live energized. Because we have given it our all and ask God to transform us so that we might become like him. See, this is the power of the Eucharist. So far, so good? One last little section here, if I may, before I take a few questions. Jesus is no stranger to the human struggle. He led the way by his suffering and cross, and Jesus is a man of suffering who evidenced every level of hurt, injustice, betrayal, abandonment, and rejection. And although deeply wounded and profoundly hurt, he won victory through forgiveness and love. His heart was so cushioned by love, understanding, compassion, that the poison from the wounds that he received never festered so as to embitter or even destroy him. It's so important to not lose track of forgiveness. For forgiveness returned love whenever injury was received. And the perfect prayer that our Lord has given us is the Eucharist, for it is this ultimate sign of healing and forgiveness. All of our spirituality flows from the Eucharist and returns there as well. It is the highest form of union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And to do so, means we are to receive it hopefully well. So this is my encouragement to find healing in the very act of the mercy of God through the cross in the sacrament of reconciliation. It softens the ground in which we receive God's graces. 
so that it might bud in us and grow to full stature. For it is the victory of forgiveness that we, I would urge, want to taste in our own lives. And this is really only done by uniting it to the cross, our lives, that is, to find healing in God's very merciful love. For when we receive Holy Communion, we enter into the heart of charity, that is love, where all are reconciled and united by love and forgiveness. To be divided by anger or resentment is really to negate the meaning of communion and perhaps even render it void. The Eucharist invites us to deeper forgiveness in the secret places of the heart. It will never allow hidden anger or unresolved resentment to divide the body and tear at the seamless garment of his love. We are invited into, we are invited to place into the chalice all unforgiveness, as well as all our unhealed hurts, unmet needs, and even conflicts. For in the long run, we can't trust our own strength. It's insufficient. We know this. We dare not rely on the feeble, our own feeble human efforts, for all our hope is in Christ Jesus and in the power of the gift that's, gifts that he gives us. In that, one, in that final act of thanksgiving after communion, when you come back to your seat, when you kneel down, it's time to express then the gratitude and the very simple thank you for the graces you have received. We need to celebrate Eucharist in a meaningful way, surrendering the need for, heal for, the need for healing, sincerely desiring a forgiving heart and choosing the path of mercy. And we can then conclude the Eucharist with the final spoken words of gratitude and praise, thanks be to God. For in the long run, maybe just a little bit more after we've given all of ourselves, we know that we have touched grace and have been touched by mercy. For the Eucharist is the gift of the Father who reconciles all to himself. It is the gift of Jesus who shares his mercy and forgiveness. It is our gift to each other in granting pardon and seeking the unity as the fruit of mercy. Let me conclude with a couple of last thoughts from St. John Henry, Cardinal Newman. Who then is there to deny that if we saw God, we should fear, he says. But if so, does it not follow at once that if men do not fear, it is because they do not act as they would act if they saw him? That is, that they do not feel he is present? Preaching for the Feast of Corpus Christi in 1856, little more than a decade after his conversion, Cardinal Newman made this bold statement to his Catholic congregation. There is no feast, no season in the whole year which is so intimately connected with our religious life or shows more wonderfully what Christianity is, that which we are now celebrating. There is a point of view in which this doctrine of the body and blood of Christ is nearer to our religious life than any other. He says, we are brought into the unseen world. How almighty love and wisdom has, has met this, 
has met this by living among us with a continual presence. He is not past, he is present now. And though he is not seen, he is here. The same God who walked the water, did the miracles, etc., is in the tabernacle. We come before him. We speak to him, just as he was spoken to over now 2,000 years ago. This is how he counteracts time and the world. It, the blessed sacrament, is not past, it is not away. It is this that makes devotion in our lives. It is this, it is the life of our religion. And we are brought into the unseen world. In a sense, we have to grow in reverence and a belief in God's presence, in all of God's merciful love. I would urge, what an exhilarating thought that we are brought into this unseen world. Thanks for listening. Do we have time for questions or are we done? Seven minutes for questions. Perfect. I, this is more time than I normally leave for questions. How we understand what he meant by this is my body, this is my blood, right? Because there is this argument, because we're not cannibals, right? We're not eating actual flesh and actual, drinking actual blood. No, 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 but, this, but seriously, that's part of the conversation. Yes, because Christ himself said it. That's kind of what I got from Right? And so the way, the way this is written is it's not in a, an analogous language. It's not a metaphor. It's not these things, right? Because he, he could have used other words, right, to do that. So the church has proclaimed this from the get-go. Now, get go. But now how it understood what that meant and its depth also grew a bit in the lives of Christians and in the church. Right? And frankly, sometimes you don't have to explain what you just know to be true until people ask you questions about it. Right? So when people start rejecting it, it's now when you have to further clarify that, which is true of all the councils of the church, right? We just know what's dogmatically true until someone says it isn't dogmatically true. And that, well, someone says what we know to be true isn't true, then we have to say, well, no, it actually is. Right? So sometimes that sounds reactionary, but that isn't reactionary. It's just articulating what we have always known to be eternally true, right? But the church's, the church's understanding of the Eucharist is, I would argue, it, it's, it's unabated from the very beginning from the Last Supper, right? At least in its pure form, like, I don't even mean pure, but like in its, like, no, I mean, were there always four songs at Mass and a cantor? You know, I mean, maybe not, right? It sort of depended. Right? You know what I mean? So there's some of the things around it, but the core elements have remained the same. Sharing the word, breaking the bread.
Right. Correct. Correct. Well, yes, I was trying to make two points. It's twofold. I'm, I'm sorry if I didn't make that very clear. Because you participate in Christ's priesthood. This is what we learn from the, from the book of Hebrews, right? We are baptized into his priesthood, right? So what this means is priests offer sacrifice. So we, who are, who are uh, baptized priest, prophet, and king, participate in our, where we are in the life of the church in that sacrifice, in the way that we can, right? But it is primarily God's work being done for us, absolutely. I hope I was clear on that. God's work being done for us, but we participate in that work, right? But he asks us to participate in it with him, right? To offer our lives, to lay down, lay down our lives for our friends. This is, this, is, this is consistent with that. Our gifts, or what we offer, are not the universal redeeming sacrifice. We participate in that grace when we offer ourselves. And God takes that meritorious effort and applies it where necessary. It's a part of being caught up in the communion of saints, right? In a sense that we're asked to pray for each other, right? And so this is being brought into that richer understanding of the unknown spiritual or the unseen spiritual world. Because you're right, it is but one sacrifice and we participate in that sacrifice. Because it is sufficient. That's why it's possible. That's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Well, I, my role at Mass is sometimes a little different, right? Because I'm taking all of that prayer, right? And I'm in persona Christi, so I'm saying the words of Christ. So I'm offering that sacrifice that is Christ's sacrifice of the cross to be renewed in all of you. Okay? So I have my Mass intention, right? Which is what that Mass for me is being offered for. Right? So I have to be very specific about that. And make sure that I remember that, right? There has to be an intention for, for that mass. So for me, that's, I, I think the easiest way to do this is to put yourself, put your intention, you know, when the gifts come up or the gifts come to the altar, that's the perfect time to place all of that there. Place yourself in your intentions. Yeah, I agree. That's a good way to do it if you'd like, if you're a very visual person, many of us are. You know, the other thing to keep, keep in mind, too, is that, you know, a host is made out of wheat. And it's many grains that are ground up. It's already a sign of all of us being brought together in that sacrifice together. Because all of those little grains ground up are us. Yeah. 
you have to be intentional. Right? This is how God, because God wants to be in relationship with us. God isn't this God that is always so distant, right? God is also present. And he wants us to be in a deeper relationship with his son. That's really what this is about. Right? So, in the, in the long run, this reality is simple but difficult. Right? Because it does take our, con our conscious effort to be a part of it. Now, the key part about this is, though, and this is why I also mentioned this uh, part of you even coming here today. See, if we offer ourselves on the patent or in the chalice, that's a good thing, right? Correct? Arguably. So, but we can't do any good on our own. It's because God has filled us with grace to even respond to that. You see, it's a beautiful understanding and a richness to understand or to, to be brought into the depth of God's love for us and then for God that lives in the other, particularly the one who is another Christ, who is someone who is baptized, our brother next to us or our sister next to us. You don't seem convinced. Absolutely. Correct. Pope Francis, in a recent document on people trying to understand, doing what we're doing tonight, to get people to understand what we do at Mass to do in the liturgy, says we have to once again recapture our astonishment, our wonder, and our awe. This is what prevents us, I think, from engaging the mystery. Because we don't like to be astonished. We don't use our imaginations in wonder. And we think too much of ourselves. And don't, are not that awe-inspired by God. So to understand how to go deeper is really to have this childlike astonishment that God is in love with me. That leads me into a deeper sense of wonder about how can this be and what does this mean in my life? And then awestruck by the great gifts that flow into me. Right? And that I think can be very vivid and very visual as well. Right? One last, can I make one last point then? This is, what time is your last, your, your Christmas mass? Midnight, excellent. I maintain wholeheartedly that if you ever go to midnight mass as a child, you will only ever be a Catholic in your, in your mind, your heart. You might leave the church, I hope that's not the case. But you'll always be a Catholic. Because there's something about that evening when a baby comes in the stillness of the night that we commemorate in such a way that he's made renewed and present in our midst because he's amongst us. Amidst the lights and the carols and the family and the gifts, right, all of that, it stimulates the Catholic imagination in such a way, fr frankly, I don't know why people go to any other mass than midnight mass. I, I, I really don't because it's so beautiful. 
but I understand that there are family commitments and things like that. But I just know this is where I found my own vocation. I was seven years old, midnight mass. I had to be a part of it. I knew it. Now I delayed a little bit, but that's how life goes. Right? So, yeah, there's just something about, I think you're right, getting into this deeper sense of imagining. Another good way to do that, too, is in the scriptures, when you hear the scriptures being proclaimed, is to place yourself in the story. Place yourself in the story. You start to smell, hear, and see things that are very, you know, we see these lines, but those lines are very rich. Each line could be, you know, volumes. So put yourself in the stories as Christ is breaking open the word for you. Okay? Thanks again. I, like I said, one last, final, final last point. Remember, we're never going to get to it all tonight in 45 minutes. Pray. Work. Right? This is, and I don't mean working off your salvation. I mean, like, be a part of what God is doing in you. Okay? Very, very happy rest of Advent. I won't say, you know, Merry Christmas exactly yet, but I'm going to say Merry Christmas anyway, because I can. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Father Brad, for your words of wisdom and for your presence tonight. Thanks. And can we have your blessing? Oh, sure, of course. The Lord be with you. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Go in peace, everybody. Thanks for being here.